0: I want to make everyone understand fully that Han Dong is an outstanding member of our team. And suggestions that he is uh, somehow not loyal to Canada should not be entertained.
1: Okay, so that was the prime minister today asked about a story that uh, broke on the weekend. uh, Global news from from uh, our next guest here. Now, it's not really a denial of the contents of the story. And frankly, there's a bit of a straw man here. Uh, that the prime minister is presenting. This is about what Chinese officials are doing or attempting to do when it comes to Canadian democracy and Canadian elections. Now, this story involves the nomination battle in a Toronto area riding just ahead of the 2019 election. The sitting MP, according to sources, and CSIS documents was targeted and support was provided to a challenger. And CSIS, once they became aware of that, uh, allegedly gave an urgent classified briefing to senior aides, warning them about this and urging them to reject this candidate. Uh, so the prime minister with some denials there, the MP in question with denials today, that he was at least a willing or witting participant in any of this. But the prime minister did not address the question of whether he was briefed. Did CSIS come to him? Did CSIS present this to him? So a lot's happened since the story broke over the weekend, but I want to welcome in the journalist who broke the story, who also first broke uh, the news about Chinese interference attempts in the 2019 federal election, Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper. Sam, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So as mentioned, some denials, some non-denials denial today from uh, the prime minister, from the MP in question. Uh, what, What do we need to know about what was said about this today?
0: What I heard from the Prime Minister uh, was was not any uh, denial that uh, the Liberal Party was warned shortly before the 2019 election that uh, Canadian intelligence had serious concerns that this candidate uh, Han Don was allegedly connected to Chinese foreign interference. Uh, what we reported was that uh, According to our sources, with awareness, Canadian intelligence provided this urgent warning shortly before a federal uh, nomination deadline, with the intention of giving uh, Mr. Trudeau's party the information they could they could use to make a decision uh, to protect Canada's democratic institutions that would give them the chance to replace this candidate. So Mr. Trudeau is correct. It is not the role uh, we heard him say today of Canadian intelligence uh, uh, to direct political parties what to do. And uh, certainly CSIS does not have the mandate to tell uh, Canadian politicians and leaders what to do. They have the mandate uh, to, to give defense, what are called defensive briefs and warnings and uh, that's what we reported. Uh, so that's what Canadians need to know. Uh, uh, there is no denial that uh, a very serious warning was made and that Mr. Don uh, uh, was allowed to run and uh, and won and re-elected in 2021. But uh, there's a lot of information cited to documents and sources in the story. And I think you're right. There's uh, some denials going on, and 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 I uh, we haven't heard direct answers from Mr. Trudeau. Were that was was he and his uh, senior officials in his party alerted to this information about the candidate? I want to say uh, very clearly, Handon uh, uh, re- has repeatedly now denied any allegations of involvement as has uh, another alleged suspect that was mentioned in this brief, uh, one of his colleagues from Ontario uh, legislature.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. And and I suppose just the possibility maybe that that, you know, he wasn't aware, but I think CSIS officials were concerned at the time that not only was this happening, but that maybe he was. So let's talk about what you've learned here through sources, through CSIS documents. This is I think just the month before the 2019 election. This is a sitting MP, by the way, in in Gangtan, uh, who was the alleged target of this interference. He's also of, of Chinese descent, so I think, you know, the, the MP being targeted here, we should point that out, given some of what the Prime Minister said today. But what was going on at the time here, then?
0: Our reporting for this story uh, is, as we've mentioned, about this uh, this threat brief uh, to the party about this candidate that's running and what Canadian intelligence believes they have learned in an investigation into what they believed was an election interference network operating in 2019. Our sources, uh, with awareness of that investigation, have said CSIS believed uh, that Mr. Gang Tan, the, the incumbent MP, was not favoured by uh, the Toronto consulate, that is, Chinese officials we're not uh, we're not favoring his performance for some reason. So this is coming from Canadian intelligence. We're reporting on it, and uh, CSIS investigators believed that uh, as part of a plot, there was a scheme to have uh, Gang Tan step aside and to have. Mr. Handon allegedly step up into the place there. So that's at the core of the allegations that Csis was concerned about. They were concerned that uh, another uh, this Ontario politician, Michael Chan, a former Ontario Liberal Trade Minister, was able to uh, influence uh, the Prime Minister's senior aides that uh, it would be uh, a good, it would be the right thing to do to have uh, Handon step into that that riding. So uh, what happens after that, we have reported based on documentation and October 2022 thesis report that I reviewed, a sensitive report says that in this Toronto riding, Chinese seniors were bussed in and uh, 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 told to vote for a certain candidate. The seniors had uh, the name of the candidate concealed under their sleeves. Additionally, allegedly Chinese uh, international students were bust into the riding and uh, the CSIS document says they were uh, told if you want to retain your student visa in Canada, you should vote for this candidate. Now let me be very clear. Uh, Han Don's name and Don Valley Norse are not mentioned in the documentation. The case is mentioned and our CSIS sources with awareness say that uh, Mr. Don is the candidate in question. That report uh, concluded to say that the 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 candidate in question was close to and supported by the People's Republic Consulate in Canada. And I'll repeat one more time: Hand Don has come out again today and uh, and and strongly denied any, any of these allegations.
1: Why would uh, Gangtan Tan uh, possibly have been targeted? I know at one point. Uh... Before, I think it was 2018, he was actually uh, set to travel to Taiwan, something that certainly would have got the attention of the Chinese government. Was that one of the, the issues maybe that led to him being uh, allegedly targeted here?
0: Well, two points here. Uh, our, intellig- our, our Canadian intelligence sources with awareness of the investigation say, said they learned through intelligence that the, the Chinese consulate was not pleased with Gangtan's performance, so that is one point. Uh, they had uh, intelligence that Handon was uh, a preferred candidate uh, and was uh, allegedly uh, considered close to the Toronto consulate. The incident you refer to comes from a Canadian intelligence document that says uh, in uh, two, on, again, I need to be very clear here, it says two Ontario uh, members of the legislature, this is the provincial legislature, allegedly together with a Chinese consulate officials worked to persuade a liberal MP sorry, a federal MP Mm -hmm. to forgo a trip to Taiwan. So that's three people mentioned there. Our sources say Gang Tan was a liberal MP. The two uh, provincial officials are hand on and Michael Chan. So to explain to your listeners, this uh, this fits into intelligence reporting that uh, One of uh, the People's Republic's chief and top activities in foreign interference in Canada is stopping the political engagement of Canadian officials with uh, Taiwanese officials because, uh, as many of your listeners will know, China believes Taiwan is a, a renegade province and wants to take back or reunify that province.
1: Right. So at this point, according to your sources, uh, this was presented to the prime minister. He was asked about it today. He he didn't really address it. He didn't really deny it. So do we know or what can we say at this point about what came of of this investigation?
0: What I know from sources is uh, the the reports, some of the uh, intelligence documents I've been reporting on over the previous months, about uh, these 11 alleged candidates in Greater Toronto that were allegedly favored and supported by China in 2019. This type of reporting has been escalated in Canada's government. Uh, My sourcing is that uh, key ministers in uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's government have been informed of these allegations and that the investigations are ongoing. What we do know is that there are no charges uh, to our knowledge, none of the uh, staff members of politicians that were said to be involved in this interference have have lost their jobs. Essentially, uh, no action has been taken. And that's an important point because a big part of our reporting is that uh, national security experts say that uh, this activity uh, is believed to be uh, harmful to Canada's national security and sovereignty, but Canada lacks uh, the tools of some other democratic nations that would have modern laws against what foreign interference which is very different from a old school espionage which is about uh you know stealing intellectual property or national secrets foreign interference is about other countries such as china also russia there are others that are very active in canada attempting to place or influence politicians in canadian governments that would uh speak for or or promote the interests of these foreign states
1: some very important journalism we'll see where it all goes from here of course i think adding to calls uh, now for public inquiry into to some of these issues but we'll leave it there for now much more as mentioned globalnews.ca sam cooper thank you so much for this here this afternoon appreciate it thank you all the best uh, that is global news investigative journalist sam cooper broke the story over the weekend about uh, the ceaseless investigation into this liberal nomination battle in 2019 The evidence they gathered and the evidence they allegedly presented to the prime minister. This is what we would expect CESIS to do. Right. So the casting of aspersions on CESIS here is really unfortunate. And of course, the prime minister is not really addressing any of the specific matters here. Was he briefed? Can he confirm that he didn't address it? This isn't about CESIS picking who gets to run in an election. This is about CISA's gathering information and evidence in an investigation and then being understandably alarmed by what they've gathered, going directly to the leaders in question and saying, you might have a problem on your hands. Here's what we found. To suggest, as the prime minister did today, that this is somehow about anti-Asian racism is really unfortunate. And unfortunately, I think, you know, it, it, it distracts from what is a legitimate issue. That's not what this is about. Because, you know, the two individuals in question here, the, the individual who was the sitting MP and then the individual who did successfully challenge that MP are, are both of Chinese descent. But according to, to these CISA sources, uh, China was targeting one for defeat and supporting the other. But that, what does that have to do with anti-Asian racism? So, again, it's a distraction from these important issues here. This is a national security issue. And all Canadians, regardless of ethnic background, should be concerned about. And, of course, I think it's many Canadians of Chinese descent who have reason to fear Chinese interference in this country because it's often the expat community that's being targeted or monitored. So, no, it's not about anti-Asian racism or questioning Chinese Canadians or anything of the sort. It's about what China's government is doing in Canada. And so this is incredibly alarming that China would take such an, an active role in a liberal nomination battle and go out of its way to use resources to pressure people to getting involved in order to defeat a sitting member of parliament. That's what happened here. He wasn't defeated in the election. He was defeated in this nomination battle, in a nomination battle that, according to CSIS officials and according to this investigation, was heavily influenced by the Chinese consulate. We need a public inquiry here, folks. I mean, enough is enough. In terms of the evidence that emerged about the 2019 election, the evidence that emerged about 2021, now this, I mean, we need an inquiry. I don't think there's any other conclusion at this point. But off the top in this hour, I want to talk about an issue that's certainly important and relevant uh, to our health and the threats that viruses can pose, the threat of another pandemic, what's known as zoonotic spillover. Most infectious diseases that we contend with were originally in animal populations and spilled over to humans. Now, there's some growing concern about uh, avian flu, H5N1, and it's been a a bad year for avian flu and the effect it's had on, on, you know, devastating both commercial bird populations and and wild bird populations, and on occasion, affecting humans. Now, there's been some cases in Cambodia that have drawn some attention. Uh, There was a young girl who died, uh, apparently from H5N1, and her father believe is also infected with H5N1. Now, the question is, did they both get sick from exposure to sick birds? Or, this is the worrying potential, did one get sick from the other? If H5N1 is able to transmit now from human to human, we've got a big problem on our hands. So that's what everybody's keeping a close eye on. Joining us to, to talk more about that and, and some related issues. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, virologist with the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, well-known and prominent virologist, Dr. Rasmussen, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me, Rob. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, Let me just ask you, because we've talked before about the origins of COVID-19 and the likely zoonotic spillover event that occurred at the the market in Wuhan, or at least the evidence seems to point in that direction. What what do you make of these reports that the U.S. Department of Energy, and we haven't seen the evidence, I'm not sure what what they have would suggest them or point them in the direction of a possible lab leak that that emerged over the weekend. What, What did you make of that, first of all?
2: Yeah, so I think that this is really important to to communicate to people because people are talking about it as though the evidence has really changed. And as you pointed out, we actually haven't seen this evidence because it's still considered classified information. Um, so, while I always have an open mind um, about what what new evidence might emerge regarding the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and, and the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I can't really say for sure either way since I haven't actually seen the evidence that has caused them to to change their assessment from unsure to a low confidence um, estimation that it it could have come from a lab. But I will say that all the reporting describes this evidence as quote unquote weak, um, Mm -hmm. according to a source that talked to the New York Times and the agency themselves said that it was with low confidence. Uh, Given that information, I find it very difficult to think that this uh, evidence, whatever it is, is actually going to provide an alternate explanation for the evidence that we do have, which suggests, as you just mentioned, that the pandemic began through at least two zoonotic spillovers that occurred within two weeks of each other uh, at the Wanan Market, which is an area that's roughly the size of a tennis court and is over eight kilometers and a river away from uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology where that laboratory work was going on.
1: Right. I mean, if there's some kind of scenario where somehow the virus got from the lab to the marketplace, I mean, maybe, but, but again, where's the evidence? It would appear based on this report that the belief is that it came from a, a, a lab leak, like a research lab leak, not a, a weapons program kind of kind of leak, which would imply then even if it did somehow go through this lab, that this still came from, from some animal population originally.
2: Yeah, originally, and I mean there's a a lot of different scenarios that have been discussed about this lab accident that it, you know, was a virus that was originally naturally derived but may have been modified in the lab, um, not for necessarily you know bioweaponeering reasons, um, but just in the course of studying the virus and then it was an accident. But in my opinion, um and I talked a little bit about this on Twitter yesterday if they had evidence that put a progenitor virus to sars coronavirus 2 so that is a virus that was the direct parent, effectively, of sars coronavirus 2 at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to me, that would not be a low-confidence finding. Um, if that were the case, if that If they do have evidence that that virus was in the possession of the WIV and they were working with it in culture, um, to me, that would actually indicate with very high confidence that the pandemic began as a result of a lab accident. And so unless I see data that actually shows that, um, you know, then I'll probably disagree with them of the confidence of their assessment. Yeah. Um, but a low confidence assessment to me does not suggest that they actually have evidence that the w i v was working on a virus that 's remotely related to SARS coronavirus. Right.
1: which is what these stories su- suggest. This is a low confidence assessment on the does that's, bar. yeah
2: that 's correct
1: well we 'll see what comes of that let 's talk about what 's happening with h five n one avian flu and some of the concerns here about you know possible. It- we haven't seen any evidence again, but the possibility of of human-to-human transmission. Let's understand, first of all, because we're familiar with influenza, the influenza viruses that we contend with every year. What's different right now about H5N1?
2: So there has been an H5N1 panzootic occurring uh, for the past two years almost. Um, And a panzootic is essentially a pandemic except it's happening in animals and not in people Mm. um and so this has been very alarming um without without even thinking about potential human to human transmission um, a lot of birds have died millions and millions of birds have died Uh, it has really impacted both bird producers um here in canada in North America and around the world, as well as wild bird populations. And uh, now there's evidence also that it's beginning to affect other animal populations as well. Now, earlier this year, um, there was a lot of concern because on a mink farm in Spain, there was evidence that there was mink-to-mink transmission as well as some spillover into humans that were working at the mink farm. But fortunately, there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission. So people are studying that more closely because Historically, H5 has been very difficult uh, to transmit from mammal to mammal. So if there is adaptation in these minks in Spain that uh, are allowing mink-to-mink transmission, that suggests that there are, in fact, mutations that can lead to potentially Uh, Transmission between other mammalian species, including humans. Um, And I'll stop there before we start talking about uh, the situation in Cambodia. Yeah.
1: But yes, it's those mutations we would be looking for. And had we seen that anywhere yet?
2: So this is something that um, is currently being looked at, but uh, this is not the same H5N1 that was. that was circulating historically. This is actually a relatively newcomer to the scene. Um, the, the virus that, uh, has been predominantly spreading around the world, um, and between these minks. Um, so, no, we hadn't really seen a lot of the, the mutations, but we're still, again, doing work to determine which of these mutations, because flu is very prone to mutations, it also can do what's called reassortment, where essentially the, the different segments of its genome can shuffle together like a deck of cards, um, like putting two decks of cards together. So that makes it really challenging sometimes to track the significance of different mutations in different influenza viruses, whether it's H5 or whether it's a a human adapted strain of influenza. Um, So that's something that's still ongoing, but no question, um, there's a lot of interest in the specific mutations that do allow for a virus to not only infect a mammalian host, but also to transmit efficiently between them, because that is really important. We already know that H5 is able to infect mammalian hosts. The thing it hasn't been able to do efficiently is do that onward transmission part of it, which is a key feature of any pandemic or epidemic virus. So that is being studied very, very closely.
1: Right. So we mentioned the cases in Cambodia, and there was at least some open question about whether uh, there was a cluster of individuals, I forget how many exactly, uh, that were being tested. I, I know it's been confirmed that this uh, 11-year-old girl who died at H5N1, as did her father, uh, but there's there's evidence indicating both did get it from infected animals. But wh- what do we know at this point?
2: Yeah, so this is, um, this is a great example of why it is important to get information uh, in real time, but also to wait for confirmation of these findings. Mm-hmm. So initially it was reported that this 11-year-old girl had died of H5N1, um, and that 12 other people uh, had, you know, were, con- were suspected cases waiting for confirmation. And it turns out that those 12 people were actually contacts that were being traced. Um, of those 12 people, the only one I've heard that tested positive was the girl's father, Another thing that was not mentioned in the initial reporting was that in the village that the girl lived in, um, in a very, very rural province of Cambodia, where a great deal of the economy is uh, bolstered by animal production, including poultry production, wild birds were found dead all over their village, and every single bird that this family owned, I think they had 22 chickens and and 8 to 10 ducks all died, um, which is an indication that there was an outbreak of H5N1 in those birds in in their household. Um, So that's very indicative, actually, of potential bird-to-human transmission, zoonotic transmission, and that is historically how H5N1 human cases have occurred. (laughs) Now, when they actually did the genetic sequencing, they did find that it was H5N1, but fortunately for everybody, this was actually a different clade of H5N1, or essentially a different family of H5N1. This is the quote-unquote old H5N1 that has been endemic in East and Southeast Asia um, and is known to have a very high mortality rate. Fortunately, there's never been sustained human-to-human transmission caused by uh, this older clade of H5N1. And it does appear, given the the deaths of the birds in this household, that the father probably contracted this from contact with those sick birds and not uh, from having it transmitted from his daughter
1: okay and, and again so that, that is reassuring, but it 's a reminder of this potential threat, and you know should some of those mutations occur you know, the impact this disease can have on humans, our lack of exposure to it, our lack of a vaccine for it, this could all be very problematic. So even if we've dodged a bullet here, does this should this be a wake-up call?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it should have honestly been a wake-up call, you know, last year or even the year before when we started to notice huge bird die-offs. We mm-hmm. started to notice an increased frequency of other animals getting H5N1, H5N8, H5N6, and other avian influenza viruses that have been circulating in increased numbers. And now we're seeing you know, really an unprecedented spread of H5N1 around the world in other animal species, including marine mammals, uh, including the minks in Spain and in some other countries, and including in, uh, in potentially other mammalian species. Every time a virus, an RNA virus like influenza, replicates in a new host it it has new evolutionary opportunities Um, and even if it doesn't ever evolve to uh, productively transmit between humans um, it still can wreak immense havoc uh, on in terms of our economy in terms of our ecology in terms of the ecosystem and in terms of food security so this is a big problem that we really do need to consider and uh, what, what that means, essentially, is we need to, to look at all the tools that we currently have to deal with influenza and potentially uh, prioritize implementing some of those. That would mean better diagnostics, uh, more vaccines, and potentially vaccines for animal species. Um, that, that approach has actually been successful in reducing both animal and human infections uh, for some other avian influenza species in China. Um, and, and really thinking about how we can be proactive about these emerging viruses rather than reactive.
1: Which might include having vaccines essentially on the shelf, ready to go if necessary.
2: That's right. Um, So Jeremy Farrar, who is the incoming uh, chief scientific officer of the World Health Organization, recently just wrote an editorial in the British Medical Journal advocating for exactly that, to develop uh, different vaccines that would be applicable to all different subtypes of influenza that infect mammals uh, or infect birds. Um, so that they are essentially ready to go. Now, there is a stockpile in the U.S. of H5N1 vaccines that was developed uh, back in in the early 2000s when we started to recognize what a problem H5N1 could be. But a stockpile, as we saw with the monkeypox epidemic, um, only goes so far when that outbreak gets bigger than uh, the the number of vaccines that you have stockpiled. Um, So I really do think that it's important all around the world to be thinking about the development and manufacturing and distribution plans for all of these different vaccines, whether we need them right now or not, because when we do need them, we're going to need them in a hurry.
1: No doubt. We'll leave it there for now. I always appreciate the insight, Dr. Rasmussen. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon.
2: Always a pleasure, Rob. Have a great
1: week. Likewise, you as well. Take care. Uh, There you go. That's Dr. Angela Rasmussen, virologist at the Vaccine Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan. So uh, that's what we know at this point about H5N1. These cases in Cambodia does not appear to be human-to-human transmission, but it shows that, you know, exposure to sick and dead animals can lead to human infection. So it's crucial then in, in the agriculture industry, anyone working a, around birds, to have proper protocols in place to prevent that, you know, to take steps to minimize possible exposure for bird populations. This has been spreading like crazy around the world, as she mentioned, really over the last couple of years. Uh, but to be vigilant and and you know, to have access to to quick information and credit to Cambodia. Because health officials, they have been very open and upfront about this whole situation, very quick to respond, to, to isolate potential contacts, to do the testing, to understand what's going on here. But yes, this you know, version of H5N1 can be very devastating. As mentioned, this 11-year-old girl died from it. And it's not something we have prior exposure to. It's not something we have a vaccine for. If all of a sudden this virus mutated uh, to the point where it could infect, you know, humans could infect other humans, we'd have a big problem on our hands. So how best to, to mitigate that risk and how best to be prepared for it? That seems like a pretty logical starting point here moving forward. <music> the idea of a four-day work week seems to be gaining some momentum, and it's easy to see the appeal. We just had a four-day week. Uh, when was that, last week? week before I don't know I'm losing track family day was just recently and yeah it was an example of maybe what could be the norm working four days instead of five so you can see the appeal perhaps to workers this perpetual long weekend basically but doesn't make sense for companies what is the upside of this idea you can see how stress anxiety even illness could be reduced But if it's cutting into companies' bottom line, and and by extension, then the overall impact on the economy, that would be a concern. So it's useful to look to this six-month pilot project in the United Kingdom that just recently wrapped up. And the findings are, are quite telling that, yes, there was high level of satisfaction amongst the workers, lower levels of stress, anxiety, and illness, But also for these companies, it didn't really result in any kind of a negative impact on their bottom line. Revenues were steady or even up in some cases. Coming out of this six-month experiment, many of these businesses kept this four-day work week arrangement in place. So what does it tell us then about the case for the merits of a four-day work week? Is it something that we should be considering here? Is it something maybe that's coming eventually? It raises some, some really interesting questions. I want to find out more about this uh, pilot project, what it studied, what it found, what it tells us about the conversation going forward. Uh, one of the researchers who was involved in this, Dr. Dale Wheelahan, is a behavioral scientist and CEO of 4 Day Week Global. Dr. Wheelahan, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you so much, Rob. It's a pleasure.
1: Well, this study is getting a lot of uh, inter- international attention, I think, for a good reason. But uh, let's take a step back. Give us a bit more of an overview, if you can, of you know how this, this pilot project was established and, and what it was you were watching for, measuring here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the story, I suppose, of the 4-Day Week movement and the 4-Day Week global movement started back in 2018 when we trialed a 4-Day Week in a company called Perpetual Guardian, which is a company run by our founders, Andrew Barnes and and Charlotte Lockhart. And what we found was quite resounding success around um, the benefits of reduced working hours for the health and well-being of people in the company, and also productivity, uh, business outcomes. And that really started the journey, I suppose, of tapping into um, a huge movement for the future of work. So the 4-Day Week Global uh, not-for-profit was founded thereafter, and we have been um, coordinating and running pilot studies across different jurisdictions to evaluate these metrics, I suppose, um, in different companies and different, um, different sectors. Mm-hmm. So we had our initial pilot results come out from companies from Ireland and the United States back in, um, in November, and that was 33 companies. And now we have this uh, amazing data coming from the UK results, which has found renowned, resounding success for um, business productivity, for revenue, for health and well-being. But then more broadly, things like improved gender equality metrics and uh, improved larger societal uh, outcomes as well.
1: And when people say what is a four day work week, I, I guess the answer kind of depends. What's interesting uh, from what I read about this study is that there's not really a one size fits all. Different companies in this project tried different models, so there are a lot of different answers, I guess, to that question of what is a four day work week.
3: Absolutely. Um, so we we apply a principle of 180 100, and that essentially is 100% pay for 80% of the time for 100% productivity. And the research, I suppose, that we've done in conjunction with Boston College and Cambridge has looked at trying to capture some of the different ways that companies have adopted that principle. And you're correct in saying some people have adopted what we might most traditionally think of as a Monday to Thursday uh, reduced working hour model. But other places have looked at reducing their work day um, across the five days to make it equivalent to um, a four-day week.
1: And as you say that 80 percent, I know that's one of the issues that comes up. If, if people aren't working as much, companies are going to lose productivity or companies are going to lose revenue. So as we talk about the implications of this and what this study found, what did it mean to the bottom line of these companies?
3: So I think that the, the concept of the four day week is the gold standard. That's where we want to get to. And in order to get there, there's multiple chains that organizations need to go and innovate in order to facilitate that goal. I think many organizations have to have a good conversation with themselves around, well, what does productivity look like for us? And I think many realize that we have been focusing our productivity metrics wholly around the amount of time that we're working, but that time doesn't necessarily correlate to um, you know, the, 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 where the business draws the line. So a lot of the science has constantly said that we have huge, we waste huge amounts of time in our workday. And so it's really about identifying that those wastes in our workday, removing them and working a lot more optimally.
1: In terms of the implication for the workers, and it, it seems, I, I suppose, uh, sensible to think that, that a reduced work week, a reduced schedule could lead to less stress, less anxiety, maybe better health, both physical and mental health. What do we find in terms of the impacts then on, on those workers at these companies?
3: Yeah, really resounding um, findings. 71% of the participants in the UK trial reported lower burnout, which we know is a growing issue in the workforce. And 39% reported lower levels of stress. Um, Nearly half of our participants reported lower levels of fatigue and and less difficulties with falling asleep. And um, over two-fifths of the participants as well reported improved mental health. So I think it, it really solidifies the very intrinsic role that our mental health and well-being has on our work and vice versa.
1: Do we notice any differences in terms of different demographics, older workers versus younger workers, male versus female workers? Do we see different impacts in different groups?
3: So that's one of the really interesting findings to emerge from this, and it was really an incidental finding, is that um, all of these benefits were much um, more exaggerated in female workers. And, you know, especially when we look at establishing um more gender parity in the workplace and gender equality, this is, I suppose, a really resounding success um, to help facilitate that. Um, So many women um, reported that they felt much more secure in their jobs, that they were able to get their jobs done in a much more efficient way. And more broadly, from a family perspective, um, nearly three quarters of people reported greater satisfaction with their time Three-fifths found it easier to combine paid work with um, parenting responsibilities. And 21% of uh, those who were engaged reported reductions in child care costs as well.
1: well. I suppose the true test as to whether this is sustainable is is whether these companies stuck with this new model or went back to their their previous status quo. So as we look at the aftermath of this pilot project, what do we see on that side?
3: Yeah, so I think it's absolutely um, astounding. Again, 92% of our companies are um, continuing on with the four-day week um, model. So it really stands merit to, despite the fact that we had multiple sectors involved in this um, study, that the majority of them saw more benefits than not, and that they're going to stay on with the study. And I think that has been facilitated by the fact that comparable to other years, on average, we saw a 35% increase in revenue um, in these companies compared to similar periods of previous years. What do
1: you see as the implications then for this study uh, globally? I mean, yes, this was a study in the UK over six months, but it seems like these are broadly applicable findings elsewhere. What are the implications here, do you think?
3: I think it's really, it's, it's no longer a fringe conversation. You know, we might have, spoke a bit more um, quietly about reduced working hours in a four-day week last year and even um, years before that. But now it's becoming a normal conversation for people to have in a way that's not seen as, you know, um, something out there. And what we're trying to do in four-day week global is facilitate that conversation internationally by coordinating further trials across the European Union, South Africa, Australasia, um, and running, I suppose, Asynchronous trials as well for companies who want to get involved in the U.S. and Canada as well.
1: Do you think that we're eventually going to see this as the norm? Where where is all of this headed, do you think?
3: I think so. Um, With the growing levels of burnout and stress that we're seeing in society, with the growing climate crisis that we're seeing in society, and inequities within the workforce, despite many interventions that have been trialed to date, none have seen such large effect sizes um, and benefits. While this research um, in the UK didn't necessarily look at any sustainability metrics, our research in Ireland and the US found that people who engaged in um, reduced working hours engaged in a lot more pro-social behaviours around sustainability as well. So I think that this conversation around reduced working is going to enter into many spheres of influence beyond just um, work. It'll go into uh, the world of sustainability and the world of climate uh, as well.
2: Really
1: fascinating. Much more, as mentioned, 4dayweek.com. Dr. Wheelahan, thank you so much for your insight on all of this and appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon.
3: Thank you so much, Robin. There
1: you go. Very interesting. Dr. Dale Wheelahan, a behavioral scientist, CEO at 4 Day Week Global, 4dayweek.com. They were involved in this research uh, stemming from this pilot project. So the vast majority of the companies after all of this seemed to like the new arrangement. The employees seemed to like it. That became their new reality. does it work for everybody. Again, when we're talking about the five-day week or the four-day week, and we're talking largely about people who kind of work the nine-to-five, Monday-to-Friday thing. And clearly a lot of people don't work that. So does it work for everybody? How would it work for people who work shifts and overnights and, and work in institutions where there does need to be somebody around the clock? I mean, to some extent, I suppose that's, that's the situation here at this radio station. We're on the air Monday to Friday. And then, of course, on the weekend, we have different shows and different people working. If the weekend's now three days, then that's an extra day. You got to find people to do that. And then the people who are working Monday to Friday who are now working Tuesday to Friday, whatever it is, they're still earning the same. So there's situations where it could impact costs of businesses. Again, from this, this study the six months uh, that this ran with these companies, over 60 companies in the UK, that it didn't really get into their bottom line. So, again, that's going to depend on the company, their structure, et cetera. On the whole, I mean, people like long weekends, so I don't think you'd get a lot of pushback to the idea of just having a long weekend every weekend from now moving forward. You know, at the same time, too, I mean, you know, people work second jobs, side jobs, People working four days instead of five, that's just an extra day where they maybe pick up hours doing something else, right? So I don't know if it necessarily makes all of those issues of burnout, and anxiety go away, given some of those additional pressures folks are facing. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.